welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Are you settled into your home yet? Oh, we're trying. I I kept uh, giving people status updates like, well, we're 92% moved in and we're 27% unpacked. Uh, Now we're 100% moved in, but maybe 48% unpacked. Hey, that's almost half. And that's a big deal (laughs) for moving only like two weeks ago. No. It's not like we're hosting Thanksgiving dinner for 40 people this year. No. (laughs) Absolutely not. No. Well, good. I'm so glad. And you're sitting in your dining room with a beautiful smoky mirror that covers an entire wall. Wow. <laughs> really, really pulling back the curtain on for everybody. Yeah, huh, Lauren? Sorry about that. Sorry. Sorry. Well, we joked that we could do kettlebell. Yes. In, uh... It was funny because every um, every uh, person that's seen the house has said a different thing that we could do in this dining room oh, with the mirrors. Really? The movers were like, you could do a gym in here. And you were like, we could do kettlebell in here. And our babysitter was like, you could do ballet in here. It was really, of course, yeah. of course, Lizzie said that you could do ballet It's very cute. It's very cute. I was like, yes, yeah. we could do, you know, I told the movers if they needed to take a Zumba break, um, oh, yeah. that they were more than welcome to use the dining room for that. Um, That's very good. You know, they didn't take us up on it, but... Mm, that's a shame yeah. maybe next time yeah. next time you move maybe they'll do that <laughs> we're never moving again no anyway. I know it's moving is the absolute worst <laughs> no one likes to move I keep saying that to people like no one has ever said you know what I miss I miss putting everything I own in a box and then trying to find schlepping it later it. schlepping it back and forth and cleaning and then getting stuff dirty and then cleaning again I miss that so much no one has ever said that in the mm. history of humanity ever Mm-mm. The, the people living in caves were like, we got to move to another cave. Ugh, Ugh. I got to pick up all these rocks. Is this what your rock? Do my- Was this rock here when we got here? <laughs> Can we just leave this rock here? I'm really tired of it. It's too big for the space. <laughs> Grog. Anyway. <laughs> Is that a segue at all? No, not even a little bit. I, <laughs> I just imagine cave people had names like Grog. Oh, yeah. Um. Which is probably, I mean, it's that's probably rude of me. Um, but uh, kind of going off of art, I guess, cave paintings. Oh, yes. That's a bad Tenuous. segue. Tenuous. Um, so you have been bugging me to do this topic. And, you know, I'm going off of some art history stuff. The, the semester's coming to a close, thankfully. And um, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to bite the bullet. And it's actually very appropriate for this period of time right now. Um, I'm going to be talking about today Christo and Jean-Claude. Excellent, because the first time that they came up as a trivia question on Learn League and they they revealed the answer, I was like, I have no idea who these people mm. are or what what this means. And how do 33% of Learned Leaguers know who they are? Yeah, they have been kind of everywhere and nowhere at the same time throughout their career. Like they have been like just steadily working since the late 50s basically. And and it's it's so funny because they they do these like huge monumental works um all over the world. Uh but they're and they're known in the art world, but I don't know, it's just kind of difficult to kind of get a hang on them. So <sighs> So Christo and Jean-Claude, I'm going to have to have you help me with some of the French. Um, Remember, they just are, make your mouth very tiny. I will make my mouth very tiny. Uh, so Christo and Jean-Claude were a married couple. They are now both have both since passed. Um, their work was, their artworks were typically large, kind of visually impressive and controversial sometimes. Mm. Um, and they often take took years and sometimes decades of careful preparation, uh, including technical solutions, political negotiation, permitting and environmental approval, hearings and public persuasion. Um, They also refused grants, scholarships, donations, or public money. Okay. Uh, Instead, they financed the work solely through the sale of their own artwork. Oh, wow. So they described the the multiple elements that brought the projects to fruition as integral to the artwork itself and said that their projects contain no deeper meaning than their immediate aesthetic impact. 
the purpose being simply for joy, beauty, and new ways of seeing the familiar. So their artwork is is almost purely for aesthetic purposes. Mm. Seeing their artwork, it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything especially deeper. Okay, it's it's. <laughs> All right, great. I love yeah. I love this. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I you don't have to do it. Like deep sometimes dive. a tree is just a tree. Exactly. Sometimes a painting of a flower is just a nice painting of a flower. That's totally okay. So let's start with Christo. Uh, his birth name was Christo Vladimirov Javashev. He was born on June 13th, 1935, in Gabrovo, Bulgaria. He was the second of three sons. Um, and uh, he was the son of a textile manufacturer. He was shy. Um, but he already had a predilection for art when he was a child. Um, he received private art instruction at, a y- instruction at a young age and the support of his parents who invited visiting artists to their house. So he had a very, like, warm, encouraging environment oh, growing up. Um, he was particularly affected by events from World War II and his country's kind of fluid borders. So during evacuations, he and his brother stayed with a family in the rural hills outside town where Christo connected with nature and also handicraft. So these kinds of aspects of his artwork would continue throughout his life. Mm-hmm. So while Bulgaria was under repressive totalitarian rule and Western art was suppressed, Christo pursued realistic painting through the mid-1950s. So really like traditional realistic images of people and animals and flowers. Um, He was admitted to the Sofia Academy of Fine Arts in 1953, um, but he really didn't like it there. He found it kind of boring um, and kind of stifling to his creative endeavors. So he found inspiration in Skira art books and visiting Russian professors who were older than him, obviously, and and once active in Russian modernism and the Soviet avant-garde. So on the weekends, um, Academy students were sent to paint propaganda, and Christo kind of unhappily participated like he had to and he really did not want to uh he found work as a location scout for the state cinema and served three tours of duty during summer breaks so in 1956 he used an academy connection to receive permission to visit family in prague and amid fears of further russian suppression in hungary christo decided to flee to vienna as a rail car stowaway so he like hid himself in a train to get to vienna Um, He had little money after paying a bribe. He didn't speak the language. He had deserted during his Bulgarian military service, and he feared being trapped in a refugee camp. So in Vienna, he stayed with a family friend who actually hadn't expected him. (laughs) Oh, they were just like, opened the door, and Krista was like, hi, can I stay with you? I escaped my country. He is just like a bindle, like on a stick. Yeah, all dirty because he was literally a hobo, like riding the rails. So while he was in Vienna, he studied at the Vienna Fine Arts Academy, and he surrendered his passport to seek political asylum as a stateless person. So in Vienna, he supported himself with commissions, and he briefly visited Italy with the Academy, um, whose program he found equally kind of miserable as the one before it. He really just wasn't a guy for schooling or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So at the behest of a friend relocated from Sofia, he saved up to visit Geneva in late 57. In violation of his visa, he continued to pursue commissions um, whose works he would sign with his family name of Javashev, reserving his given name for more serious work. Okay. Um, so he was transformed after visiting the Kunstmuseum Basel in the Kunsthaus Zurich. And in January 58, he first began to wrap things. So Christo and Jean-Claude are known My name for- is Christo and I'm here to say. <laughs> Yes, he loved to rap. He, he was very rapping. good. He, yeah, just he, as good as I am. <laughs> yeah, you're just a talent. I was like, is that Busta Rhymes I'm hearing through my cans? <laughs> People often confuse us. It's uh, it's really you and wild. Busta Rhymes. Yeah, I you know what I hear it all the time, and I'm like, no, that's Julia. <laughs> you silly person. Um, no, he began to wrap things in fabric, <laughs> and this started to become his trademark. Um, he started with a paint can. Started small. Okay. I'm going to wrap a paint cam. That's my art. Um, his collection of wrapped household items would be known as his capital I inventory. And in February 58, he left for Paris, having received a visa with the assistance of a Sophia Academy connection. Um, so Jean-Claude, his wife, Jean-Claude Denat de Guibon, was born in Casablanca, Morocco, where her father was an army officer um, and he was stationed there. Her mother was known as Presilda. She was 17 when she married her father, Major Leon Denat. Uh, Presilda and Leon Denat divorced shortly after uh, Jean-Claude was born. 
and Priscilla married three times. Uh, Jean-Claude earned a baccalaureate in Latin and philosophy in 52 from the University of Tunis. And after Priscilla married the general Jacques de Gibbon in uh, 1947, the family lived in Bern and Tunisia before returning to Paris. By the way, Christo and Jean-Claude were born at the exact same day, the exact same year. They were born on the same day. That's nuts. Isn't that the wildest thing? June 13th, 1935. He was born in Bulgaria. She was born in Morocco. They were born on the same day. Whoa. Yeah, it's so weird. That's really crazy. Yeah. So Jean-Claude was described as extroverted. She had very natural organizational abilities, which would help her later in her career with her husband. Um, She dyed her hair red, which she claimed was selected by her husband. And she took responsibility mostly for overseeing work crews and for raising funds for their projects. Mm. Um, They met in October of 1958 when he was commissioned to paint a portrait of her mother. Initially, Christo apparently was attracted to Jean-Claude's half-sister, Joyce. Um, And Jean-Claude was engaged to a man named Philippe Planchon. And shortly before her wedding, Jean-Claude became pregnant by Christo. And then she went on, but then she went on to marry Planchon. (gasps) But then she left him immediately after their honeymoon. And so Christo and Jean-Claude's son, Cyril, was born on May 11th, 1960. And then they got married shortly after. Isn't that wild? That's nuts. That's nuts. They must have, they were destined to be together being born on the same day. So their first show together as artists together was in Cologne in 1961. And it showcased three types of artworks for which they would be known. So three things that Jean-Claude and Christo are known for. Wrapped items oil barrels, and ephemeral large-scale works. So, so the, are the oil barrels also wrapped? Sometimes. Okay. Um, but most often they're stacked. They From a distance, they look like Legos almost, like round Legos. They're kind of stacked together in these huge, like, walls. Those are very heavy. They are very heavy. Even empty, they're very heavy. So, yeah, they, they usually needed, like, work crews to help them with a lot of their stuff. Huh. Um, and, like... And that's why it was so expensive. Like, it's amazing that they didn't get any grants or public money or anything. They, like, raised the money on their own and then would pay for these huge projects. And they were usually ephemeral. Like, they Mm -hmm. would only be up for, you know, a week or two weeks or a month or, you know, six months or whatever. And then they would be gone forever. So... Um, near Christo's first sh- solo show in Paris in 1962, they blocked an alley with 240 barrels, oil barrels, for several hours in a piece called Iron Curtain, which was a reply to the Berlin Wall. Oh. <laughs> so it was kind of like guerrilla artwork okay. in that way. So they developed a consistent long-time terms of their collaboration. So they would together kind of imagine these projects for which Christo would create sketches and these preparatory works that he would later sell in order to fund the ultimate, you know, finishing finished okay. product. And then they would hire assistants to do the work of wrapping the object at hand. Um, they actually originally worked under just the name Christo to s- simplify dealings and kind of like create their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because it was difficult to establish an artist's reputation and the prejudices against female artists so they just went with Christo to begin with. Okay. Um, but they would later retroactively credit their large-scale outdoor works to both Christo and Jean-Claude. Um, they eventually flew in separate planes such that in case one crashed, the other could continue their work. Whew. That's how, like, first of all, like, interconnected they were and passionate about what they did. It's kind of amazing. That's crazy. So they eventually relocated to New York City, which was at that point the new art world capital in 1964. And he began to make what he called storefronts, um, which were wooden facades made to resemble shop windows, which he continued for four years. Um, His largest piece was shown in the 1968 Documenta 4. And in the mid-60s, they also created what was known as air packages. They were inflated and wrapped research balloons that they would kind of like let fly in spaces. This... Uh, (laughs) People must have been, I don't know. I don't know if confused is the word, but like, is is that a bunch of garbage? (laughs) Well, think about it. This is 1964 in New York City. We have Yayo Kasama is like, she's doing her happening. We have Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. We have Jasper Johns. You know, like this is a very like, okay. the art world during this time period is really wild and weird and people are doing whatever they can. 
like to make a to make a statement or make something happen. Um, so yeah, air packages. Uh, and then in 1969, at the invitation of a museum director, Jean Vandermark, they wrapped the Chicago Museum of Contemporary Art while it remained open. They wrapped, they wrapped the entire the museum. building. They wrapped the whole museum. And it was panned by the public because people huh. were like, boo, boo, you're covering my museum. And the, it was ordered to be undone by the fire department, but that went unenforced. Like the fire department was like, um, this is excuse me. a fire excuse hazard. Me. Excuse me. Hi, this is a fire hazard. So by wrapping, you don't mean like shiny paper with Rudolph no. the Red-Nosed Reindeer printed on it. You don't mean uh, just a big ribbon around it. Nope. It, I'm talking mean, like, like huge white tarps or polypropylene fabric or just like giant sheets of fabric wrapped around or cascading down from the roof and then wrapped with like like rope or you know metal rope or something to like adhere it to the surface <clears throat> so yeah i could see why people be like excuse me <laughs> excuse me what's going I, on what's happening why are you doing this to my museum so uh i guess it didn't. So their first like major huge building wrap did not go over great. Okay. Um, so what happened was, uh, oh, also <laughs> with the help of Australian collector John Keldor, uh, Christo and Jean-Claude and 100 volunteers wrapped the coast of Sydney's Little Bay as Wrapped Coast, which was <laughs> the first piece for Keldor Public Art Project. So they wrapped the coast of... Of Sydney. This is very Bay. like Carmen San Diego henchman. Right? It is. It's kind of weird. And I think the reason why they do it is because they're like, do you want to see if we can wrap an entire coast? Like, <laughs> I think they were just like, let's see we're if we can wrap do this. Because Vatican look, City. Yeah. We're going to wrap a whole so cool. country. Yeah. I mean, they tried. So within a year of wrapped coast, um, Christo began work on what was known as Valley Curtain. And Valley Curtain was an orange curtain of fabric to be hung across the mountainous Colorado State Highway 325. <laughs> so, and there's a picture, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and send it to you. Um, it's crazy. It's literally That's so weird. It's literally a giant orange curtain just spanning like a valley and a yeah, road. Yeah, it kind of looks like it's there to catch something bad that's gonna happen. Yeah, right. And all these and it's, you know, it's this is, you know, when was this? This was 1969. Okay. So uh, 1969, 1972. Um, that's around those same times. So he like, like, there's all these people standing like they had pulled yeah. over on the highway, like looking at this giant curtain, like what the fuck is going on? Yeah. So huh. They also, they were, simul while they were working on Valley Curtain, they were simultaneously working on wrapped walkways, which was in Tokyo and Holland, and wrapped island in the South Pacific. <laughs> but neither one of those actually, like, came to fruition. They had, like, sketches and drawings of them, but they didn't actually get to do it. Um, they formed a corporation to benefit from tax and other liabilities, um, and this was a form they later used uh, for later projects. So following a failed attempt to mount the curtain, the Valley Curtain in late 1971, a new engineer and builder contractor raised the fabric in August of 1972. Um, the work of Valley Curtain only stood for 28 hours before the wind destroyed the oh fabric. Oh my gosh. Um, this work was their most expensive to date and the first to involve construction workers. And this was captured in a documentary by David and Albert Mazels. Oh. Which were the, the documentarians who did Grey Gardens. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah, I had no idea. So Christos Valley Curtain was nominated for Best Documentary Short in the 1974 Academy Awards. And the Mazels would film many of the artists' later projects. So they okay. would collaborate for years and years and years. So in 1972, inspired by a snow fence, uh, Christo and Jean-Claude began preparations for Running Fence, which was a 24-and-a-half-mile uh, fence of white nylon supported by steel posts and steel cables running through the Californian landscape and into the ocean. Um, so in exchange for temporary use of ranch land, the artists agreed to offer payment and use of the deconstructed building materials. Um, others challenged its construction in 18 public hearings and three state court sessions, <laughs> but the fence began construction in April of 1976, and the project culminated in a two-week display in September, after which it was taken down. People were like, can they, can they not put up a 24-mile-long 
<laughs> nylon fence. Do they not? Do, what? Do they not do that? Can we just Please? not? <laughs> yeah. They're like, no, we're doing this. It feels happening. like every other year I'm in court fighting. <laughs> <laughs> fighting to prevent someone from putting like a polypropylene fence across 30 miles of a desert or whatever. <laughs> Typical. So I know, right? Typical Christo and Jean-Claude. Um, so then they planned a project based on Jean-Claude's idea to surround 11 islands in Miami's Biscayne Bay with 6,499,800 square feet of pink polypropylene floating fabric. Oh my gosh. This was called Surrounded Islands. It was completed on May 7th of 1983 with the aid of 430 workers and could be admired for two weeks. Uh, the workers were outfitted with pink long sleeve shirts with pale blue text written on the back reading Christo Surrounded Islands. And then in acknowledging the garment's designer, designed and produced by Willie Smith. Willie Smith was one of the biggest African-American fashion designers of the 70s and 80s. Oh. And they would collaborate with him a couple of times to like make these workers T-shirts. Oh, which is kind nice. of funny. So he would design their T-shirts for them. Um, Jean-Claude became an American citizen in March of 84, and the couple actually received permission to wrap the Pont Neuf, a bridge in Paris, in August of 1985. Uh, the bridge stayed wrapped for two weeks, and the Pont Neuf wrapped attracted three million visitors. Uh, wrapping the Pont Neuf continued this tradition of transforming a sculptural dimension into a work of art. Uh, the fabric maintained the principal shapes of the Pont Neuf, but it emphasized the details and the proportions. Hmm. So as with surrounded islands, workers who assisted with the installation and deinstallation of Pont Neuf wrapped wore uniforms designed by Willie Smith. So one of the things that people, that art historians talk about with Christo and Jean-Claude and them like wrapping, you know, monuments or landmarks mm -hmm. or that kind of thing is to draw attention to something that people who live there or even tourists who visit there see every day. Okay. So to give it a new context and be like, oh, like whenever you see like scaffolding on a building right. that you drive by every day, you're like, huh, I wonder what they're doing. Like if you change a little thing about something that you see every day, it draws attention. If you cover that entire thing in like bright white or bright orange fabric, it's it really draws your attention again in a new way where you can kind of see, you know, the dimensions of it and the shape, like the overall shape and yeah, geometry of it. That you wouldn't have noticed, you know, if it wasn't completely wrapped. So that's part of their kind of aesthetic is that mm -hmm. to like bring attention to something that is just part of the landscape. Um, so their 1991, the umbrellas involved the simultaneous setup of blue and gold umbrellas in Japan and California, respectively. So it was 3,100 umbrellas. They cost 26 million USD and attracted. I know <laughs> what I'm going to show you a picture of it. It is. Like a, a lot of their stuff is very um, like interesting looking at mm -hmm. the very least. This looks like, this looks crazy. This looks this so looks crazy. No, no, it doesn't <laughs> look crazy. It looks silly. Okay. It's so like 30, 3,100 umbrellas yep. for how many million dollars? $26 million. That's not yeah. a really great cost per unit of umbrellas no right they really needed a dealer a better dealer for that <laughs> yeah they needed to get that yeah wholesale. so it just looks like a bunch of umbrellas set up in a countryside but it's they're like um they're like uh patio umbrellas uh-huh like they're you know kind of weighted at the bottom like you would imagine that i when i imagine like a bunch of umbrellas in a space i think of like ephemeral light like hand umbrellas but these just look like someone's going to bring you a coffee at one of those. I don't yeah. know. I didn't think it was as successful yeah. as like something else, but um, it was cursed because uh, <laughs> they had to close. <laughs> they had to close the exhibition early after a woman was killed by a windblown umbrella in California. Oh my gosh. Yep. And separately a worker was killed during the deconstruction of the Japanese exhibit. So oh. they have not, they did not do uh, umbrellas ever again. Um, so then they wrapped the Berlin Reichstag building in 1995, following 24 years of governmental lobbying across six Budenstag presidents. Uh, wrapped Reichstag's 100,000 square meters of silver fabric draped the building fastened with blue rope. Uh, Christo described the Reichstag wrapping as autobiographical based on his Bulgarian upbringing. Uh, the wrapping became symbolic of unified Germany and marked Berlin's return to a world city. Uh, the Guardian posthumously described the work as their most spectacular achievement. Mm, okay. 
So um, this next one you may remember because there was a lot of attention and this was in the U.S. Uh, work began on the installation of the couple's most protracted project, and this is the Gates in New York City Central Park in January of 2005. Hmm. Um, its, its full title is called The Gates Central Park, New York, 1979 to 2005. And that refers to the time that passed from their initial proposal until they were able to go ahead with it with the permission of the new mayor at the time, Michael <clears throat> Bloomberg. Um, the Gates was open to the public from February 12th to the 27th of 2005, and a total of 7,503 gates made of saffron-colored fabric was placed on paths in Central Park. Um, they were 16 feet high and had a combined length of th 23 miles. Jeez. Yeah, the mayor presented them with the Doris C. Friedman Award for Public Art, and the project cost an estimated $21 million, with which the artists planned to recoup by selling project documentation. Um, so Gates, I remember when it was up, I did not see them in person. Um, it was very beautiful. I'll send you a picture right now. Um, it was interesting because it's like, they're like, it has a Japanese quality to it. They're, the colors were so bright and so beautiful and it was, you know, January or well, February. And so it's interesting to see like this stark, like, landscape of Central Park and then these beautiful yellow flags, gates that you're like walking yeah. under and through. All right. Yeah. It does have yeah, a, you, an Asian influence, it feels. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was very beautiful. Um, you know, people in New York like lost their friggin' minds about it. Oh, if if only Instagram had been around then. Oh, oh, just heartbreaking that no one got to like take a picture of like with their arms up in the air, mm -hmm. with their Starbucks in one hand, like, I'm at the gates. Thank you, Christo. Kissy face. <laughs> <laughs> so the gates was a big deal. Um, and obviously it took them a very long time. But now here's something sad. Oh. Jean-Claude died in New York City on November 18th, 2009 from complications due to a brain aneurysm. Oh. Her body was to be donated to science, one of her final wishes. Um, when she died, she and Christo were at work at Over the River, which was an ultimately failed project meant to span silver fabric across the Arkansas River, um, and the United Arab Emirates project called the Mastaba. Um, she said, quote, artists don't retire, they die. That's all. When they stop being able to create art, they die. So, Very matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was a practical lady, and you know what? Bless her. She got a lot done in her time. So... Christo's next project after his his wife died uh, was he filled uh, the gasometer Oberhausen from March 16th until December 30th, 2013 with the installation Big Air Package, which is the name of it. Um, after the wall, as the final installation of the Emscher Park International Building Exhibition, Big Air Package was his second work of art in the gasometer. So a gasometer, the gasometer, the gasometer Oberhauser, um, was a giant like old gas tower okay. in Oberhauser, Germany um, that was abandoned and is now like a, a public art space. Okay. And it's huge. It's like this big, like you imagine like a water tower. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like a gas tower, but it's, it's actually connected to the ground. It's like freestanding, like a building all the way up kind of thing. So this was a very ambitious project. <laughs> so uh, the big air package project for gasometer Oberhausen Germany was conceived by Christo in 2010. And this was obviously for the first time without Jean-Claude. Mm. The sculpture was set up in the interior of the industrial monument and was made of 719,000 cubic feet of translucent fabric and 14,800 feet of rope. In the inflated state, the envelope of the big air package mm -hmm. um, with a weight of uh, 5.8 tons reached a height of more than 300 feet, a diameter of 160 feet, and a volume of 6,300,000 cubic feet. <sighs> yeah. It was huge. So this monumental work of art was temporarily the largest self-supporting sculpture in the world. Oh, interesting. And you could also go inside of it. Um, so in the accessible interior of Big Air Package, the artist generated the unique experience of space, proportions, and light. So it was like being inside of a white balloon. Uh, like the biggest white balloon you could possibly imagine because oh it was 300 gosh. feet high. Incredible. So that was a big deal. 
So then in 2016, he installed the Floating Piers, which was a series of walkways installed at Lake Iseo near Brescia, Italy. Um, And this was from June 18th to July 3rd of 2016. And visitors were able to walk just above the surface of the water from the village of Sulzano on the mainland, the islands of Monte Isola and San Paolo. Uh, The floating walkways were made of around 200,000 polyethylene cubes covered with 750,000 square feet of very bright yellow fabric. Uh, 1.9 miles of piers moved on the water. Another almost mile of golden fabric continued along the pedestrian streets in Solzano and Peschiera Melagio. After the exhibition, all components were to be removed and recycled, and the installation was facilitated by the Beretta family, owners of the oldest active manufacturer of firearm components in the world and the primary sidearm supplier of the U.S. Army. Well, they were in (laughs) Italy, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the Beretta family owns the island of uh, San Paolo, which was surrounded by floating piers walkways. The work was a success, as you can imagine, with the Italian public and critics as well. Um, And then finally, continuing their series of monumental wrapping project, the Arc du Triomphe in Paris Uh was wrapped in 30,000 square meters of recyclable polypropylene fabric in silvery blue and 23,000 feet of red rope. It was originally scheduled for autumn of 2020, Uh, but it was postponed a year to Saturday, September 18th to Sunday, October 3rd, 2021, due to the COVID-19 pandemic in France and its impact on the arts and cultural sector worldwide. Christo died at his home in New York City on May 31st, 2020 at 84. He did not get to see the Arc de Triomphe wrapped. Um, So following his death, his office stated that the project would nevertheless be completed. And I I think I read somewhere that his son had something to do Mm -hmm. with like completing his work. Um, also, small debate. Uh, several articles in the press cut the name of Jean Claude uh, on their coverage of the event, right? Leading to a debate about the suppression of the place and women in art history. Mm. Like, just because she wasn't alive doesn't mean that they weren't like a unit. They didn't write. They didn't talk about this over drinks in 1982. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, in closing, unto his critics, Christo said. I am an artist and I have to have courage. Do you know that I don't have any artworks that exist? They'll all go away when they're finished. Only the preparatory drawings and collages are left, giving my works an almost legendary character. I think it takes much greater courage to create things to be gone than to create things that will remain. Jean-Claude was a firm believer in the aesthetic beauty of works of art, and she had said, We want to create works of art of joy and beauty, which we will build because we believe it will be beautiful. So that was Christo and Jean-Claude. That's very interesting. Like I Yeah. Like I guess if if anything I had picked up that they that they did big wraps of buildings, but I had no yeah. idea about any of the other like public artwork or or like the stretching between mountains yeah. or doing a coast. Like it just it seems crazy to me that anybody would come up with these ideas, let alone be able to uh, accomplish them and then right. take them down after like right? two and weeks. It's like the, the like the um, people who climb mountains is like, why are you doing that to like risk your life and all that stuff? It's like, because, because it's there. Can. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, why don't we try and wrap an entire coast of an entire city? Why? Cause one, we, because let's see if we can do it. And two, I bet it would look so cool. And I bet people <laughs> would love it. Like that's literally their whole motivation was just like, I bet it would look really cool. And I bet people would love it. We're and that has, were all of their fabrics like solid colors or did any of them have any like prints or anything? No, it was all solid, all solid. colors. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was because that that uh, would draw the eye and not create any, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Interference. Like pattern, yeah, interference with just like the, the strict yeah, structural okay. quality of whatever they were wrapping. Yeah. It's cool. Oh, very neat. So you can't, uh, so- you can't really own one. No, I can't. So if anybody tells you, here's a word to the wise. <laughs> if anybody tells you like, oh yeah, my dad bought me a original Christo and Jean-Claude, you can say bullshit. <laughs> no one owns Christo and Jean-Claude. No one. They cannot be owned. They cannot be owned. They cannot be contained. They cannot be held in the hand like sand. Stop yeah. it. Once the artist is dead, they've stopped creating. Yep. It's true. That's what Jean-Claude said. That's what she said. So um, speaking of monuments, my quiz today is on landmarks and monuments. Okay, question number one. 
quick one. How many columns surround the Lincoln Memorial? Here's a hint. They represent the states that were in the Union upon Lincoln's death. Question number two, multiple choice. The Taj Mahal is one of the most well-known monuments on the planet and sits on the southern bank of which of the following rivers? A, the Ganges, B, the Orinoco, C, the Yamuna, or D, the Danube? Question number three. The Rapa Nui culture is thought to have been the originators of these giant stone head memorials, which have baffled archaeologists for generations. At what location would you find these mysterious isolated heads? Question number four. The Arc de Triomphe in Paris is probably one of the most recognizable monuments on our planet. But the soldiers of what conflict does this structure commemorate? Question number five. It's featured in a lot of helicopter shots in mainly adventure or thriller movies. But the giant statue of Christ the Redeemer looks out over what South American city? Question number six. The Plague Column, or Trinity Column, is a memorial column located on the Graben, a street in the inner city of this European city. It was erected in 1679 after the Great Bubonic Plague and resides in this second-largest German-speaking city in the world after Berlin, which also happens to be known as the City of Music. In which city is the Plague Column? Question number seven. In what spicy French city could you see the tombs of Philip the Bold, John the Fearless, and Margaret of Bavaria. Question number eight, true or false? In the Alabama town of Enterprise, there is a monument to the boll weevil. Question number nine, the Children's Peace Monument in Hiroshima, Japan, is dedicated to the child victims of what? And finally, question number 10, which emperor created the wall that runs across England to separate the Romans from the barbarians? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. How you feeling? I love questions like this. Oh, good. I'm so glad. All right, this great. This is exactly what my brain has been <laughs> craving its whole life. Great. Perfect. I love it. Okay, here we go. Question number one. How many columns surround the Lincoln Memorial? Here's a hint. They represent the states that were in the Union upon Lincoln's death. Ugh. <laughs> you just said you love these questions. Yeah, and then I forgot that you asked this question. <laughs> All right, so the answer is not 13, and it's not 50, so... <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I'll say 22. It's 36. Mm. Um, altogether, there are 36 fluted Doric columns on the Lincoln Memorial. The memorial was designed by Henry Bacon, and it was open to the public in 1922. So maybe that's what you were thinking mm, of, the okay. year it opened. Question number two, the Taj Mahal is one of the most well-known monuments on the planet and sits on the southern bank of which of the following rivers? A, the Ganges, B, the Orinoco, C, the Yamuna, or D, the Danube? Ask me a rivers question. <laughs> that answer is the Ganges. I'm sorry. It is not <gasps> the Ganges. It. it is the Yamuna. Okay. I never heard of that one. I know. I'm, I didn't hear about that either. So the Taj Mahal is a beautiful mausoleum built to commemorate Mumtaz Mahal, the beloved wife of Shah Jahan in 1632, um, which is a lot later than I was expecting, a lot mm -hmm. later than a lot of people expect, I think. So this beautiful example of Mughal architecture is located on the southern bank of the Yamuna River in Agra, India. Uh, the beautiful white marble on the outside of the monument was inlaid with semi-precious stones such as amethyst, jade, and turquoise. And the monument appears to change color with changes in the weather Ooh. and or the amount of sunlight or moonlight bouncing off of it. 
So it's a very beautiful, I mean, there's a reason why people take, get their picture taken in front of it all the time. <laughs> okay, question number three. The Rapa Nui culture is thought to have been the originators of these giant stone head memorials, which have baffled archaeologists for generations. At what location would you find these mysterious isolated heads? It's Easter Island. It is Easter Island. So the Rapa Nui are the people native to Easter Island. The term is also used to refer to their language and their island. Um, they are world famous for their stone mawe, which are found all over the island. Um, there are many theories as to what these statues were commemorating. Some ideas include in memory of past ancestors, honoring their old families. There are even theories that they depict aliens from another planet who visited the native population. Probably. We'll probably it. never yeah. understand what it's for. But yeah, um, it's at one point in 2019, I knew two different people from Pittsburgh who were at Easter Island. Yeah, I know one of those people. It's very weird. They're both at Easter Island the like at different times. Was, yeah, I've... Uh, I had never known anybody to go to Easter Island. And then yeah. simultaneously, two people I know were there during the same month. And it's not an easy place to get to. No. No, not, not even a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you can just like take a flight there and then stay at the hotel. Like a legionnaire you know? from Pittsburgh to Easter Island? <laughs> yeah. No, no, it no. doesn't exist. Please. All right. Question number four. The Arc de Triomphe in Paris is probably one of the most recognizable monuments on our planet, but the soldiers of what conflict does this structure commemorate? It's the Napoleonic Wars. It is the Napoleonic Wars. It's also um, the French Revolution as well. I would have accepted of. either or both. Um, so it was commissioned by Emperor Napoleon in 1806, but not completed until 1836. Um, the tomb of the unknown soldier lies beneath the arch and is commemorated by an eternal flame. And the names of military leaders, as well as sculptures from major battles are depicted in various places on the arch. It is, um, if you have the, if you're, if you find yourself in Paris and you're debating, should I go up the Arc de Triomphe or should I go up the Eiffel Tower? I would recommend going up the Arc de Triomphe because hmm. you get some very cool views and it's a little less busy and a little yeah. cheaper than the Eiffel Tower. Oh, that's um, And you still, you know, you still feel really cool because you're actually like going inside and up into it. Uh, oh, when yeah. I was there with my mom a couple years back, the elevator wasn't working. So we had to climb the oh, no. stairs all the way to the top. So, you know, that was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so you got your, you got your cardio yeah, got, in yeah, that got day. Got that cardio in that day for sure. Mm, um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of really cool views of the city from up there. Cool. That's a good tip. Mm -hmm. And that has been travel tips with Julia. TM. Ba -da -ba. Okay. Question number five. It's featured in a lot of helicopter shots and mainly adventure or thriller movies, but the giant statue of Christ the Redeemer looks out over what South American city? It is Rio de Janeiro. That is Rio de Janeiro. It is a 38 meter tall statue of Christ standing with his arms outstretched. It's familiar for many postcard views of the city of Rio. Um, it was erected in 1931. The statue underwent major restoration in 2000. And you can ride a train up to Corcovado Mountain and visit the statue up close and personal. It's cool. It's also one of the places that like Google Maps has done a lot of uh, photography of. So you can like follow Google Maps and go down to Street View and like climb up the mountain and Ooh, like cool. walk out onto, you know, through the street view, like walk out onto the platform and like look up and yeah, it's really cool. Cool. I love that. Yeah. They've done that with a lot of cool, a lot of cool landmarks. Cool. I love that. Question number six, the plague column or Trinity column is a memorial column located on the Graben, a street in the inner city of this European city. It was erected in 1679 after the Great Bubonic Plague and resides in this second largest German-speaking city in the world after Berlin, which also happens to be known as the City of Music. In which city is the Plague Column? Now, this is a guess. I was, mm. I'm going to say Vienna. You are absolutely correct. Your uh, music clue was it. That was the city of oh, music. Good. That, that's good. I'm what so glad. me. Uh, the original column was wooden, but it was replaced in 1693 by the current one, which is very Baroque. Mm. Um, it's made of marble. It's extremely beautiful. Um, the plague column in Vienna, everybody. Uh, question number seven. In what spicy French city could you see the tombs of Philip the Bold, John the Fearless, and Margaret of Bavaria? Now, the French are not are not well known for their, their spicy know, food. Their spicy food. Um, mm -hmm. If I had to fathom a guess, I would say Dijon. You are correct. It is Dijon. 
Uh, this historic city of Dijon is in the Burgundy region of France. It was the capital of Burgundy from 1000 AD until 1477 when it was incorporated into the French kingdom. Along with the tombs, which are located in the palace of the Dukes of Burgundy, you can see Notre Dame, 13th century Gothic church, and St. Here we go, Beignet Church with its 10th century circle crypt. <laughs> Beignet. What are you? How many? Benign. What letters are in that word okay, you're trying to say? B E with an accent. N I G N E. B E N I G N E. Benigne. Yeah. Uh, Benigne. Saint Benigne. <laughs> Patron saint of beignets. Yes, patron saint of delicious donuts covered in powdered sugar. Uh, Question number eight, true or false? In the Alabama town of Enterprise, there is a monument to the boll weevil. True. True. The citizens of Enterprise erected this unusual monument in 1919 to express their appreciation to the insect for destruction of the cotton crops in the early 20th century, which forced their farmers to diversify their crops. Uh, the monument, which is the only known one to a pest, consists of a woman in a white gown holding a black bull weevil above her head. It is, I'm going to send you a picture of it. It is so wild. It is like a typical, you know, like Victorian era, turn of the century, like beautiful woman standing on top of a column. Um, and she's, you know, everything's all white and it's very beautiful up until literally... <laughs> I'm sorry, up until literally the top where it's just, it looks like a children's toy of a bull weevil. Here we go. <laughs> it does. It It's very futuristic. <laughs> it's weird. It looks like she's like a, I, I would say, almost like a Grecian goddess who would be yes. holding an amphora. Mm-hmm. over her head and instead she appears to be <laughs> holding like uh i don't know a transformer I- <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird it's, it's like, very weird it, it does look like they're saying like worship our bull weevil <laughs> it's very weird so anyway take a look at that google that? it everybody it's amazing okay question number nine the children's peace monument in hiroshima japan is dedicated to the child victims of what um, the atomic bomb. Yes. So the Children's Peace Monument is dedicated to the children who died during the atomic blasts in Hiroshima, as well as those who died from subsequent diseases caused by the blast. Uh, specifically, the memorial is for Sadako Sasaki, a young girl who, in according to tradition, attempted to fold 1,000 origami cranes in order to wish for world peace. Although she died from leukemia before she was she could accomplish her goal in 1955, the memorial serves as a reminder to work toward her wish of peace on Earth. I remember there was like a children's book about her about a thousand cranes. Yeah, the thousand. I think yeah. it was just called a thousand paper cranes. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading that as a child and being very like struck by that. Um, and finally, question number ten: Which emperor created the wall that runs across England to separate the Romans from the barbarians? Everybody's favorite. Uh, Hadrian. Yes, that is Hadrian. Um, here's a funny thing about the Emperor Hadrian, and I told my students this and they loved it. He may or may not have murdered his boyfriend. So, so he, he had a boyfriend and he was, his boyfriend was like super young and his name was, um, Antoninus Pius. And so Hadrian was like in his late forties and Antoninus was like, like too young. He was like 15 or something (laughs) like that when they got together. So um, they would do everything together. He would travel, like Hadrian was the one Roman emperor who was an emperor who was known for like traveling all over the Roman empire. Like he loved to travel and like meet all of his subjects and all this stuff. So he would drag Antoninus along. And Hadrian was also like a passionate hunter from a young age. And in Northwest Asia, he actually founded and dedicated a city to commemorate this bear that he killed. Um, And there is also a documented evidence of him and Antoninus killing a lion so uh so he would like we killed a lion and he had all these things made and all this stuff um but Anton Antonus probably was murdered because they were they were Hadrian and his entourage were like going down the Nile River um as part of a flotilla and there were all these people with them and all mm-hmm. of this stuff and then 
around the time of the festival of Osiris, Antonus fell into the river and he died, probably from drowning. And then Hadrian publicly announced his death, but gossip soon spread throughout the empire that he had been intentionally killed. Ooh. And that his death actually remains a mystery to this day. Sure. And it's also possible that he... <laughs> I, yeah. I think there was really a statute of <laughs> limitations on that. Uh. <laughs> and it's possible, actually, that Hadrian himself never knew, but there are a couple of hypotheses that have been put forward. One is that there, he was murdered as a conspiracy at court. Like, he was Hadrian's favorite, and so they wanted to get mm-hmm. rid of him. But he actually didn't have any real political pull, so that doesn't really make any sense. Okay. Um, there was also a suggestion that Antonus had died during a voluntary castration as a part of his attempt to retain his youth and thus his sexual appeal to Hadrian. Um, but this is very improbable because that actually wasn't a thing. Um, (laughs) the third possibility is that the death was accidental, perhaps if Antonus was drunk. Um, but Hadrian never describes it as an accident. So that is Mm. like, you'd think that he would be like, oh, my beautiful boyfriend died in an accident. But the most, the, mo- the most possible thing is that Antonus volunteered himself as a human sacrifice oh. because Hadrian had been sick and he had been sick for like years. He had like some kind of chronic illness. And apparently in the second century Roman Empire, a belief that the death of one could rejuvenate the health of another was really just like a widespread belief. Oh. And so the idea was that Antonus sacrificed himself in the belief that his boyfriend Hadrian would have recovered. So if this were true, Hadrian might not have revealed the cause of Antonus' yeah. death because he didn't want to appear either physically or politically weak. Okay. So, wow. So it's kind of like a mystery. But yeah, I loved, I spent like a good like 10 or 15 minutes on this in class because I did not want to talk about the Roman Empire anymore. <laughs> <sighs> Almost the let end me of the tell semester, you about everybody. This instead. I was like, let me tell you about this juicy story about Hadrian and his murdered hot boyfriend. <laughs> He was very hot too. Like Hadrian commissioned all of these beautiful sculptures of him. They're like there. He actually, after he died, he created a cult of Antonus that lasted for like nine hundred years. <laughs> like there were people worshiping Antonus like well into like the next century. It was incredible. What a legacy! It's really amazing. What a legacy! Hot drowned boyfriend. <laughs> well, on that note. Thank you so much, Lauren. This was really <laughs> terrific. Uh, and we'll definitely share some pictures of some of the artwork that yes. uh, Lauren mentioned throughout the episode. We'll put those on our social medias because social media, social social media, that's one word. Yeah. One. Huh. All right. Oh, boy. Yep. <laughs> our socials media. Yes. <laughs> so um, thanks so much for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next time. Yes. Uh, Goodbye. Bye.